The text for the sermon today is about justice to be exercised by a king, and that concerns a king of the northern tribes of Israel. And it contrasts with what was going on in Judah, in the southern tribes at the moment. And that's why our scripture reading at this time is from Second Chronicles chapter 19. So let's read together Second Chronicles 19. And there we read in God's word the following. When Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, returned safely to his palace in Jerusalem, Jehu, the seer, the son of Hanani, went out to meet him and said to the king, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Because of this, the wrath of the Lord is upon you. There is, however, some good in you, for you have rid the land of the Asherah poles and have set your heart on seeking God. And Jehoshaphat lived in Jerusalem, and he went out again among the people from Beersheba to the hill country of Ephraim and turned them back to the Lord, the God of their fathers. He appointed judges in the land, in each of the fortified cities of Judah. He told them, Consider carefully what you do, because you are not judging for man, but for the Lord, who is with you whenever you give a verdict. Now, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Judge carefully, for with the Lord our God there is no injustice or partiality or bribery. In Jerusalem also, Jehoshaphat appointed some of the Levites, priests and heads of Israelite families, to administer the law of the Lord and to settle disputes. And they lived in Jerusalem. He gave them these orders. You must serve faithfully and wholeheartedly in the fear of the Lord. In every case that comes before you from your fellow countrymen who live in the cities, where the bloodshed or other concerns of the law, commands, decrees, or ordinances, you are to warn them not to sin against the Lord. Otherwise, his wrath will come on you and your brothers. Do this, and you will not sin. Amariah, the chief priest, will be over you in any matter concerning the Lord. And Zabadiah, son of Ishmael, the leader of the tribe of Judah, will be over you in any matter concerning the king. And the Levites will serve as officials before you. Act with courage, and may the Lord be with those who do well. As far as scripture reading, the text for this morning is from Second Kings chapter 8. The verses 1 through 6. And there we read in God's word. Now Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, Go away with your family and stay for a while wherever you can, because the Lord has decreed a famine in the land that will last seven years. 
The woman proceeded to do as the man of God said. She and her family went away and stayed in the land of the Philistines seven years. At the end of the seven years, she came back from the land of the Philistines and went to the king to beg for her house and land. The king was talking to Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, and had said, Tell me about all the great things Elisha has done. Just as Gehazi was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, the woman whose son Elisha had brought back to life came to beg the king for a house and land. Gehazi said, This is the woman, my lord the king, and this is her son whom Elisha restored to life. The king asked the woman about it, and she told him. Then he assigned an official to her case and said to him, Give back everything that belonged to her, including all the income from her land, from the day she left the country until now. As far as the text for the sermon, in response to the sermon, we'll sing the last stanza of Psalm 72 about the just king, who is, of course, Christ our Lord. Dear children of God, brothers and sisters in Christ, guests, when you read the accounts of the prophet Elisha in First and Second Kings, it's always important to remember what his name means. For in Hebrew, a name is often a word, a phrase, or even a sentence. And so every time you read that name in the original scripture, you're going to read a message, not just a name. So Elisha, L-I-Sha. L means God. If you say, if you add an I to a word in Hebrew, it means my. So Eli means my God. And Sha, that's a shortened form for save or salvation. Elisha, my God saves or my God is salvation. Elisha was the prophet who was to proclaim both the judgment and salvation of God. And he had a special emphasis on how God is faithful to those who serve him properly. And salvation, that's what this morning's passage would be about. The first question for us is, when you read this account, is how does it actually fit into what we're told about Elisha? superficially, it just seems to be a nice story. It tells us a little bit more about this Shunammite woman whose, whose son was raised from the dead. One recent commentary I consulted sees it simply as that. But surely there's more to this account than, than just a nice story for our information to wrap up this loose end. The question to ask of any Scripture passage is, what is this telling us about God? What is this telling us about Christ and about ourselves, about sin and salvation and, and service to God? What's the gospel in this message? 
The passage this morning speaks very directly of God's character as being both just and merciful. In the midst of God's judgment upon some, there's the sparkle of God's salvation for other. Judgment or salvation, which is it going to be? And so we hear the good news of God this morning. I'll summarize it with this theme. God's dealings with his people display justice and mercy. And we'll see how there was judgment on the people, how there was salvation for the Shunammite, and how there was a test for the king. First of all, there was judgment on the people. The nation Israel had divided into two almost a hundred years prior to the events of our text. Now, both Judah and Israel were God's people. And Judah in the south was ruled by the kings from the house of David. Jerusalem was the capital city, and in Jerusalem was the temple of God. At the time of our text, Jehoshaphat was um, the king, and though he had his shortcomings, he was a godly king who, who did his best to make sure that the people of Judah lived as God's people should. <coughs> Things were very different in Israel in the north. Under Israel's first king, Jeroboam, the Israelites had turned their backs on the temple in Jerusalem. And they'd begun to worship God through idols set up at the southern and northern borders of the kingdom. In Bethel, very close to Jerusalem, and in Dan, way up in the north. That was sinning against the second commandment. And then under King Ahab, things took a turn for the worse. Ahab married Jezebel, the daughter of a Phoenician king, and she introduced Baal worship into Israel. Now we're talking sin against the first commandment. The people of Israel had fallen into the sin of wrongfully worshipping Yahweh, second commandment, and worshipping Yahweh and Baal at the same time, sin against the first. And God had had the prophet Elijah address this wickedness in deed and word. First of all, Elijah just stormed into the palace and announced there was going to be three and a half years of famine. Then there was this contest on Mount Carmel. Does Baal control the lightning and rain, or does Yahweh God? And Yahweh God does, of course, because, boys and girls, Baal doesn't even exist. And the people had confessed, Yahweh, He is God. But still, not that whole nation had repented of its sin. In Israel, the, the, the northern kingdom, the fight between the one true God and the many false gods continued. Many of the people would not be convinced of the need to worship Yahweh God alone. And so God decreed another famine. This one was going to last seven years. So that's twice as long as the one during the days of Elijah and Ahab. Twice as long. A punishment twice as harsh. You might think, well, isn't God being a little bit overly harsh here? No. God had warned the people through Moses many centuries earlier. If God's people become faithless, God is going to turn the sky into bronze and the earth into iron. And there will be famine in the land. The people had been warned 
The people had had an experience. The days of Elijah and Ahab were not all that long ago. Ahab had died. Actually, it happens right before we began the reading in 2 Chronicles 19. Queen Jezebel, though, his wife, was still alive. The famine during the days of Elisha would have reminded the people of that earlier famine. So here was judgment from God with a message. But did this famine then make a difference? Did it turn the hearts of the people back to God? Well, it would seem not. For what's the situation when the seven years of famine are over? Well, it turns out that the rightful owner of a piece of property no longer has access to it. We find here a repeat of the sin that was committed by King Ahab himself. Recall how Ahab, through the devices of Queen Jezebel, had claimed for himself the land of his neighbor Naboth. Now, during the time of our text, the king is Joram. And Joram was a direct son of Ahab and Jezebel. And during Joram's reign, it happens again. The land that rightfully belongs to the Shunammite woman has become the property of another. It would seem that the people had seen how their king Ahab had acted and figured, well, if he can do it, I can do it too. Now, the sin being committed in Israel is compounded by the fact that the Shunammite is so defenseless that her only recourse is to appeal directly to the king. Now, you've got to read between the lines here a little bit to realize what's going on. First of all, it might strike you, where is the husband of the Shunammite woman? Wouldn't he be the owner of the land? Shouldn't he be the one appealing to the king? The fact that he's not in the picture can only imply that he was no longer alive. And that's confirmed by the second noteworthy thing. When the Shunammite goes to the king, she takes her son. The original Hebrew of Gehazi's word to the king literally means, Look! Her son! And so for the Shunammite's woman claim to the land to be legitimate, you've got to understand, she needed to have the child of her husband with her. If there was no child, the land would actually revert back to her husband's broader family. If her husband had still been alive, she didn't need, she wouldn't have needed to take her son to present her son to the king. And so when we read between the lines, we realize the Shunammite woman is a widow. And so the situation is as follows. After seven years of famine, after seven years of judgment, of punishment from God, Israelite society is still okay with oppressing the widow. Seven years of judgment of God had not changed the heart of Israel. They continued in their wickedness. Which makes clear that Israel is obviously ripe for further judgment. And God will be just in punishing Israel even more terribly for her sins, even more terribly the pending punishment of God is what you read about when you read on in 2 Kings 8. This judgment upon Israel, it could be averted by a righteous, godly king. 
a king like King Jehoshaphat in Judah. Now, he wasn't perfect. His biggest mistake was to set up an alliance with King Ahab. King Joram's sister, Athaliah, became the wife of Jehoshaphat's son, Jehoram. And Athaliah was as wicked as a mother, Jezebel. But King Jehoshaphat did seek the Lord. And he did combat the evil of Baal and Asherah worship. And so Judah was spared judgment. And King Joram in the north could have been doing the same. The famine had pointed out to him the reality of God's justice. The injustice being done to the Shunammite widow would have confronted him face on with the wickedness of God's people. Would King Joram now prove to be a man after God's heart or not? And brothers and sisters, we've got to look, realize that when we, we see Israel, we're in a sense looking at ourselves. We too know from experience how our God is a just God. We've seen his judgments come over the earth, come over Israel, for example, repeatedly until its exile, come over Judah, come over the Christ of God, come over Israel as a nation covenanted to God. And we've seen how, how obstinate people who have known God but turned their backs on Him, how, how, they, how obstinate they can be. I mean, just look around in our own society today. We fail to protect human life when it begins, when it ends. We're slowly seeing God-given parental duties being undermined. We sing, God keep our land glorious and free. We sing that as a nation. But sometimes you've got to wonder, is that really what God should be doing, given how we as a nation conduct ourselves? Or stepping aside from Canadian society, just think about God's church, those who, who call themselves Christian. But how much of Christianity is, is not a veneer of religion to cover a life of sin, just like Yahweh worship accompanied Baal worship? How much of it is not in practice the worship of man, of, of man's ideas and preferences, rather than the worship of God? I mean, it, it isn't only Canadian society that allows sexual practices that even churches do. Sexual practices that, that can't be justified in the face of Scripture. Scripture calls them dishonorable passions. So let's be on guard, beloved. Let's be on guard. God is not beyond judging His people. God was just when He judged Israel with the famine. You can't mess with God. And so congregation, if, you're, if your life needs changing to receive God's approval, make the changes that are needed. Worship Him in truth, not superficially. Not in combination with all sorts of other things in your life. Don't do it in a double-minded way, the way Israel did. And don't oppress the needy. Care for them. God's also merciful. That's displayed for us beautifully in the salvation of the Shunammite. We're going to think about that in the second place. There was a famine coming. And Elisha, the man of God, knew about it. Of course he knew it. He was the man of God. God doesn't hide his plans from his prophets. 
And it would have happened one day that Elisha was on the road again. And maybe you know the background to this. The Shunammite woman was the one who had built that little room on top of her house so that whenever Elisha was in the area, he could just pop in. He had his own place to go to. And so Elisha staying at the Shunammite woman's place and he tells her of the coming famine. He also had a piece of advice for her. She should leave Shunem. She should sojourn, dwell somewhere else for seven years. And at the end of the seven years, it'll all be good, and she could come home again. Now, one thing to realize, you can't tell from our passage whether the advice Elisha gave her was actually good advice, was, was advice approved by God. But when you look this up in commentaries, everybody seems to think so, simply because, well, it's Elisha speaking these words, right? But that's not enough yet. When we paid attention to, when, when you pay attention to 2 Kings 3, you run into the same problem. Elisha gives advice and you go, well, is that what God wanted him to do or not? It doesn't, it, it's noteworthy, for example, Elisha doesn't tell the woman where to go. He also doesn't say, this is what the Lord is telling you. The fact, though, that Elisha suggests she go and sojourn somewhere else does indicate that the famine was going to be a local famine. Yes, it lasted seven years. But the geography of the region makes that quite possible. Uh, the geography of Israel is not unlike that of B.C.'s interior. One valley is desert-like, and the valley just a few miles over is lush and green. And we saw that this past summer, for example, you have severe drought in one area and you only have to like drive 20 minutes and it's a totally different picture. The main valley of Israel was the Valley of Jezreel. That was the central part of the northern kingdom. That valley is separated from the Mediterranean Sea by Mount Carmel and from the south by the mountains, the hill country of Ephraim and on the north by the mountains of Lebanon. And so rain would naturally bounce over Mount Carmel and then water Jezreel. <clears throat> but sometimes what would happen is, is that the rain, instead of going over Mount Carmel, would divert to the south. Then it would water the land of the Philistines. Something else to realize is that the major trade route running from Egypt to Syria ran through the land of the Philistines. And Egypt, as a source of food, did not depend on the Mediterranean for its rain, but on the monsoon that comes from the Indian Ocean, filling the Nile, and then the Nile supplies the water in Egypt. Egypt was actually the region's breadbasket. And so in uncertain times, the land of the Philistines, that's basically from Tel Aviv today, heading south to the Egyptian border, so the Gaza Strip, for example, would be part of this, that was a good place to be if there was no food in the valley of Jezreel. Further, during most of the seven years of our text, the land of the Philistines was actually under the rule of King Jehoshaphat. It was part of Judah. So it would have been a very safe place for this widow to sojourn. And so when you add it all up, you see the same picture appear. The Shunammite woman proves to be a resourceful lady. She is faithful to God. She believes Elisha when he says there's going to be seven years of famine. 
She takes note of his advice. She leaves house and land behind. She is prepared to live as a sojourner, as a stranger, with very few rights in another place. She trusts that God will provide. And when the seven years are over, she goes back to Israel. <clears throat> she is confident that she can continue her life there. Now, by the time those seven years are over, King Jehoshaphat had actually died. His son Jehoram was now king. He wasn't God-fearing like his father. He was a selfish schemer like his mother-in-law Jezebel and his wife Athaliah. This Jehoram, for example, murdered all his brothers to establish his own throne. And as you can imagine, God's judgment, it's under King Jehoram that the Philistines rebelled against Judah. And so there could have been more at play in the Shunammites' return to Israel than just, okay, the seven years are over. It could also be the fact that the Philistines are turning against the Israelites. It's not a safe place to be anymore. And we've also got to realize, while we can tell that when she returned to Israel, she was a widow, we can't tell whether she was a widow when she went to the Philistines. No doubt she felt more security in life among God's own people who were served by a prophet like Elisha. And so this Shunammite woman, she returns home, but she finds out she has no home. The land that belongs to her and her son is not returned to her. Not even the home that was hers with that little room on its roof. And desperate for salvation, the Shunammite turns to the king. And that's noteworthy that she goes to the king. She doesn't go to the prophet. It's proper to go to the king because the king is supposed to provide justice in the land. We sang of that in Psalm 72. And it had been the practice of King Jehoshaphat in Judah, and thus also in the land of the Philistines where she dwelt. Under Jehoshaphat, we see the separation of religious and civil matters, and he appoints judges to make sure that justice is done in the land. So it makes perfect sense for the Sunamite to seek justice with the king. Moreover, even though some of her own people were troubling her, it's likely that she continued to feel secure in Israel. If you go back to when Elisha, for the first time, meets up with the Shunammite woman, and Elisha wanted to thank her for the room, he had asked her, See, you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or, or to the commander of the army? And to that, the Shunammite had responded at the time, I dwell among my own people. Back then, that's well over 10 years ago, she had no need for the prophet to put in a good word for her on behalf, on behalf of her to the king. And not now either. She goes herself, she takes her son, she's confident it's all going to fall into place. And again, there's something between the lines that you need to note. The famine had lasted for seven years. The Shunammite was gone for seven years. Seven. What was supposed to happen in Israel after seven years? Well, every seventh year was called a Sabbath year. And according to the law of Moses, in the seventh year, 
all property was, be re- was to be restored to its original God-appointed owner. Now, we don't know whether the Shunammite had just left her property and then some squatter claimed it, or whether she rented out her house and fields to some farmer. Either way, God's law clearly stated that in the seventh year, the land and the home had to be restored to the rightful owner. And so from God's perspective, she has every right to the house and fields. And actually, not only to the house and fields. According to Deuteronomy 15, also to whatever profit could be reasonably expected to have come from the land during those seven years. So it makes perfect sense for God to bless her appeal with success. Her appeal is heard by the king. The king appoints an official to look at her situation. And the end result is that she indeed receives her house and its fields and also whatever income she could have expected from her property. And that last bit is remarkable in this sense. There have been seven years of famine. Those fields would have underperformed. And yet even the little prophet, those who had stolen her fields, received from the property, even that was taken from them. For them it became an extra curse upon their wickedness. And for the Shunammite it became an extra blessing upon her loyalty to God and her faith in God's provisions. And so God blesses the Shunammite with salvation, with well-being. She was well provided for during the seven years of famine, regardless of whether Elisha's advice was proper or not. And she continues to be provided for even though she was a widow without land. God guides the hearts of the king in such a way that things work out well for her and her son. And it goes to show, beloved, that even when God punishes his people for their wickedness, he continues to have an eye for those who are loyal to him and who have faith in him. You can depend upon God. And so even as we may experience God's judgments coming over us, we should not be afraid to stand for what is right and appeal for true justice. The Shunammite illustrates for us God's mercy. He will always care for his own. And so be loyal to God and experience how God's mercy will surround you. So on the one hand, God's justice is revealed with respect to Israel. On the other hand, there's mercy with respect to the Shunammites. There's still one more key player in our text, and that's the king. For him, it's all a test. And so we want to see how God is testing the king. As the Shunammite is making her way to the palace with her son, King Joram happens to be talking to Gehazi. Gehazi, the servant of the man of God. For those who wonder about details and chronology, it raises the question, when was this? Many assume that as Gehazi is in the king's presence, he can't have been leprous. But that's not actually true. Lepers were not often treated but we're often not treated kindly, but it's not true that lepers were always shunned, were outcasts. Even the lepers that were by the gate of when Samaria was besieged considered an option um, to enter the city. You find that described in Second Kings 7. 
uh, Naaman, the general of Syria's army, operated, uh, functioned quite normally, even though he was a leper. He was a leper, and he even went to see King Joram. That's Second Kings 5. So we don't have to worry about chronology. Was Gehazi a leper, leper or not? He may well have been. He may not have been. What we can tell from our text is that King Joram wanted to know more about the things that Elisha had done and that Gehazi was very eager to tell the king. Gehazi had been an eyewitness to many of the great things that Elisha had done. Of course, strictly speaking, it's the great things that God had done through Elisha. Uh, But that didn't seem to be on the radar of either King Joram or Gehazi. We know from the Naaman account uh, that Gehazi liked to be important. He thought that Elisha was a fool for turning down the rich gifts he could have received. And King Joram, while in our text, King Joram is actually stuck in a little bit of a hard spot. His mother Jezebel figures that he should worship Baal. And by the way, Joram had an older brother who only served as king for two years and had died. So, wasn't sure about things. On the other hand, Joram is an Israelite king. He owes allegiance to God, Yahweh. He also knows how things are working down in the, king, uh, in the kingdom of Judah. King Jehoshaphat was an ally of King Joram, also a brother-in-law. They'd been to war together. He'd seen how Jehoshaphat operates, 2 Kings 3. And so the reforms of Jehoshaphat would have been known in Israel, all this stuff about justice and judges and things. And so King Joram of Israel was being confronted with a choice. And it would seem that this King Joram was primarily an opportunist. He has Gehazi come to tell him about the great things Elisha has done. There's a political motive here. King Joram is wondering whether it would be wise for him to throw in his lot with the prophet Elisha. And one of the stories that Gehazi tells is too bizarre for words. He tells of a boy who had died and come to life. Gehazi himself had been hugely involved in that. Gehazi had been the one originally who had pointed out to Elisha, this woman, she has no son. It had been Gehazi who had first tried to raise the boy back to life with the staff of Elisha. It hadn't worked. Gehazi could have been honored if he had had some sort of role in, in, in the resurrection of this boy, but he had no role. Still, Gehazi could kind of bask in the glory of Elisha. And and so he would have told the story well. And just as he's telling it, notice the providence of God here, just as he's telling it, there's the Shunammite woman with her son. Gehazi, he can imagine the king thinking to himself, yeah, right, Gehazi, raise someone from the dead, go on. But then the evidence is presented by God himself to the king. Not just the woman, her son is there too. The very son who was raised from the dead. And the king, he asks his questions. And given that he acts upon the appeal of the Shunammite, we may conclude he was convinced. Things were beginning to make sense to him. 
It was good for him to throw in his lot with Elisha, with Elisha's God. He had to abandon the Baals of his mother. He does what a true king under Yahweh would do. He follows the Mosaic law, even to that detail of restoring to the widow the prophets of the land. King Joram acted like the king of Psalm 72. Acted. But was he truly such a king? We observe outward conformance on Joram's part. What he does looks right. But are his motivations right? His actions change, but has his heart changed? And again, you've got to pay close attention here. Now, not just to our passage, but to the context. We're told lots more about this King Joram. And then we learn that King Joram remains an opportunist. When we read on in 2 Kings 8, you discover that God continues with his judgment. Judgment on just over the nation of Israel, but also judgment over the house of Ahab. For the truth is that rather than the king of Israel beginning to be more like the king of Judah, it's the king of Judah that begins to act more like the king of Israel. The actions of King Joram in our text are not properly motivated. He wanted to look right. He's looking to choose the side of the most powerful. He's a political opportunist. At bottom, King Joram is in it for himself. King Joram doesn't want to serve God. He wants to use God. King Joram wants to use Elisha to consolidate his power. His actions might be right, but his motivations are all wrong. And right actions mean nothing if the heart isn't right. And so our passage at bottom tells of a test for King Joram. He was presented with a situation of judgment and salvation. He could see, he could even experience how God is both just and merciful. He even becomes an instrument of God's mercy and justice. God makes clear that the judgment he passed on the house of Ahab wasn't arbitrary or capricious. King Joram had every opportunity not only to do what is right, but to believe in what is right. He didn't. As a king, he failed. And as the history of Israel and Judah continues, we see how his failure actually becomes a threat to the house of David, becomes a threat to the royal line that was to lead to the Messiah, the true king, Jesus the Christ. And so we see God's dealings with his people display justice and mercy. Justice with respect to Israel God increases the level of punishment from those three and a half years to seven years, and yet social injustice lives on. Israel is becoming ripe for war and ripe for exile. There's mercy with respect to those who serve God. The Shunammite continues to live nobly and by God's rules, and miracles of miracles, even though the king's heart isn't in the right place, God still uses the king to provide her with salvation. And that justice and that mercy, King Joram is confronted with both. God is testing him. And by appearances, things look good. But because of what follows in Scripture, we know that it was just a surface appearance. A thin veneer of godliness to cover a heart of selfishness. King Joram was an opportunist. 
And doesn't it show, beloved, how God needs to send a true king, a true redeemer? That king of Psalm 72, Joram looked a little like him, but it wasn't Joram. For Joram did not like the son endure. We thank God for giving us in Jesus Christ what we miss in a man like Joram. Christ's kingdom is forever. And brothers and sisters, learn also this lesson from the passage. This passage tells you who God is, both just and merciful. It tells you of the need for Christ as a true king. It also tells you of sin, salvation, and service. How God dealt with the Israelite nation warns us that false worship and oppression of the needy meets with God's judgment. So turn away from it. How God dealt with the Shunammite woman assures us that those who walk in God's ways will indeed experience God's blessing. Be thankful for that and trust in Him. And through King Joram, God makes clear it's not just about outward conformity, but it's about inward dedication. King Joram, he goes through the motions, but he could not keep Israel from backsliding. He couldn't even keep himself from backsliding, as we learn from what follows. He even begins to drag down the king of Judah with him. And so don't be fooled, brothers and sisters. Service to God needs to well up from the heart. And so go with God. Devote yourself to God in how you relate to Him and how you relate to others. Appeal for justice and for mercy to the true King, Jesus the Christ. And serve God with your whole being, not just on the outside, but all that you are. Your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. Amen.